Recovery Elevator, episode 360. When we're, when we're drinking and using, we're a ball of resentment and anger and disappointment and frustration. And that's why we drink. We drink to quiet all of those voices. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, listeners, we have Lane. She's in her 50s. She's from San Francisco. It's a fantastic interview. You guys are going to learn a lot. Yo! I am pumped for this upcoming course on Saturdays at noon Eastern for eight weeks starting February 5th. We've got our first ever sober ukulele course. No ukulele experience is needed. In this course, we'll cover how to ditch the booze, why music, sound, and vibrations help rebalance us, and of course, you're going to learn how to play the ukulele. Registration is now open, and info uh, such as what type of ukulele you'll need, etc. is all on the RE website. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And before we go any further, let's hear from Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the U.S. with an alcohol use disorder? And yet, there is still stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slip-ups or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with Tips for Handling a Relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. On that page, you'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next step in the recovery journey. That's www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. Okay, let's get started. Now, before I get into today's topic of the nervous system, I want to remind you that you're declining one drink at a time. When we think about quitting drinking or a future trip, a scenario arises in our mind with hundreds of people simultaneously offering us drinks all at once. This will never happen. And just like one day at a time, you're only ever going to say no to one drink at a time. In fact, this happens way less frequently than you'd think. For example, I think in all of 2021 so far, I've had to organically decline less than a dozen drinks. It's actually quite rare. Okay, as I mentioned at the end of last year, I want to cover the nervous system, which is what we'll be covering today and in future episodes. Today, we are going to cover why it's important to have a balanced nervous system, and I'll explain in layman's terms what the nervous system is. It's incredibly complex, but I'll do my best to summarize and simplify. And in future episodes, I'll cover the ways to calm the nervous system. There are infinite ways, and many of them don't suck. When quitting drinking, you're going to have to do the work. Meetings, webinars, cafe RE, meetups, literature, meditation. That list is inexhaustible and can be fun. The outcome of that work is highly related to the state of our nervous system and whether we are in a state of calm or flight. For example, one might meditate daily for 20 minutes. But if your body or nervous system is saying, yo, this is not the time to relax and you can't drop into the body, then it's not going to do much and it's going to be uncomfortable and not a lot of fun. 
The same goes with an AA meeting, for example. If you're too frazzled and you've got the chemicals of stress flowing through your body, you won't get much out of the meeting and you probably won't stick around afterward to connect. Doing recovery work with the torch nervous system is like going ice skating without tight laces, or fishing with just the hook and no bait, or playing catch without a ball. I'm not trying to be silly here, but attempting to illustrate how if we're not in the right state of mind or in fight or flight, then doing this work is extra challenging. Okay, the nervous system, second to the human brain, is the most remarkable creation on the planet and is responsible for all organ function, blood flow, breathing, and oversees the five senses in human beings. For this podcast, I'm covering the autonomic nervous system, which is comprised of two things, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. These are the two components of the nervous system that are most tied to a drinking problem. So think of the sympathetic nervous system as the gas pedal, one that says, yep, saber-toothed tiger, we're fucked. And then think of the parasympathetic nervous system as, nope, not a saber-toothed tiger, that's just Uncle Ron in a saber-toothed tiger costume, fuck you, Uncle Ron. In a nutshell, here's what the nervous system does. You have a sensory input, there's integration, then an output. So let's take the input. Let's take an example of an insect. Say a giant wasp lands on your hand. A series of electrochemical reactions take place, notifying the central nervous system, the brain, that something with a stinger is now walking on your hand. The integration part of this is the brain deciphering what type of danger or threat you're in. Within close to a hundredth of a second, the brain will send a signal to your hand, the motor output, that says to shake the hand and hopefully the wasp flies away. What's the CPU or the processing power of the nervous system? It can process over 13 billion bits of information every millisecond. You don't say. Okay, again, we're only covering the autonomic nervous system, which is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So what happens when the sympathetic nervous system is activated? This is the life-threatening response. The body gathers all the resources, and when it's switched on, it's go time. In short, it's a survival mechanism. There's a release of all the adrenal hormones, pupils dilate, breathing and heart rate quickens, blood pressure rises, blood is sent to the extremities, glucose is mobilized, and in extreme cases, you might crap your pants because you don't need the extra weight. All of this is done to ensure the survival of you from some threat in the outer world. When this is activated, we can basically do one of three things well. Number one, what did you say? Number two, it's time to inflate my Reebok pumps. Number three, I'm playing dead. Another way to say this is fight, flight, or freeze. I tried to add some flavor there, but not sure it worked. And this isn't a bad thing to activate the sympathetic nervous system. It's normal. It becomes problematic when it's always switched on. And when it's always switched on, we need a big gun such as alcohol to help depress it. Remember, alcohol is a powerful depressant. So with the sympathetic nervous system, it's like the gas pedal. So let's take a look at the parasympathetic nervous system, which is like the brake. So this is when the body starts to conserve energy, when it's cued to rest, to take a load off, to kick up your feet and relax. Chemicals send a message to cells to increase metabolism. This is a time for growth, a time for cellular repair and restoration. This is a time for joy, for creation. This is when musicians and artists create their works of art. This is the best time to learn the ukulele. Okay, 
The autonomic nervous system comprised of the sympathetic, oh shit, and the parasympathetic, oh we're fine, worked great for thousands of years, if not millions, for humans and our ancestors when life didn't change much. Woolly mammoth, mastodon, grab your shit and run. Open plains, no animals with big teeth in sight, have a seat and relax. What's happening today, and this is why I feel addictions and mental illnesses are on the rise, is our sympathetic nervous systems is constantly on overdrive due to life in the 21st century. Most anthropologists agree that life in 2021 is the most stressful time for a human being to live, ever. The sympathetic nervous system isn't wired to know the difference from an erupting volcano or angry email from a boss, which the latter really has no immediate impact on our physical health. But still, after an uncomfortable email, or maybe when an unexpected bill arrives in the mail, the body still cues the cortisol and the other stress responses in preparation for an attack. The reason I want to cover the nervous system is this. You want to quit drinking, there's a lot of recovery work. I'm not going to bullshit you there. If you're doing this work with an overactive sympathetic nervous system, it's not going to land or it's not going to stick. For example, meditating when your body is in a low level fight or flight response is going to be extremely uncomfortable and possibly a waste of time. In next episode, I'll discuss ways to cue the parasympathetic nervous system, but I'm going to give you two easy ways right now. If you're on day one or experiencing anxiety or just anxiety in general, start walking slowly. This can be inside or outside. The repetitive footsteps, left, right, left, right, is calming and cues your parasympathetic nervous system to turn on. Now, if you're a bit calmer, try this. Take a deep breath and focus on feeling the lowest part of the lungs. Many of the parasympathetic nervous system nerve endings are located in the bottom lobes of the lungs. This can be done one deep breath every 10 minutes, but be sure to expand the lower parts of the lung and hold it. Again, next week, I'll cover more ways to cue the parasympathetic nervous system and to add more calm in your life. Okay, before we hear from Odette and Lane, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature was founded by a father and son in addiction recovery. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specially formulated to help you face the exceptional challenges of recovery, and we are so grateful to have them as our sponsor. Beat your cravings with their Serenity Blend. If you are interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Thank you, Paul, for an amazing introduction and recovery elevator. Please help me welcome Lane to the show today. Lane, how are you? So good, Adet. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And let's get right to it, Lane. When was the last time you had a drink? December 30th, 1996. Wow. Does that feel like lifetimes ago? Yeah, that's a different world. Wow. December 31st, 1996. Lane, before we get started on just getting to the thick of it with the relationship you had with alcohol, let Mm -hmm. us know a little bit about yourself. You know, let us know where you're from. What do you do for a living? What do you like to do for fun? How old you are? Just like a little intro on who Lane is. Sure. I live in the beautiful city of San Francisco. I am a mother of a neurodivergent 12-year-old boy who runs my life, literally. 
I am a mindfulness and meditation teacher, uh, AKA your calm coach. I love taking hikes. I have two Irish wolfhounds that uh, just bring me so much joy. <sighs> what else? I love listening to really good music and dancing. I do a dance move for my husband every day and he laughs at me. Love um, it. <laughs> that's, I, that's a little bit about me. I love it. Lainey. And how old are you? I am past 50. Beautiful this morning, somebody asked 50. me that. And I was like, how old am I? 50. But I feel like I'm 40. Sometimes I feel like I'm 30. You know, like there gets to a point where, yeah, we feel like we're the same as we were right out of college. That's such a weird mind it's shift. I totally hear strange. you. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah. I see the world very differently now. And things are so much easier at this age, at this stage of my life. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, and I like the evolution that happens mm -hmm. in all of us as we grow older. So I'm grateful for it. And Lane, thanks so much. What was your relationship with alcohol like? And what got you to start attempting to quit? Uh, what was your journey with alcohols? Tell us a little bit about that and that part of your story. I love alcohol. I love, it was such a great love affair. Uh, I started drinking when I was uh, 12 with my best friend, Tanya Allen. And uh, I blacked out on my first, first go at it. Uh, I tore up the house. I couldn't see Tanya Allen anymore. And uh, it was the way to start off my drinking career. And that continued and followed me up until my 20s. You know, I, I just love that effect. I drank for the effect. I want to quiet things down in my head. I was, I've always been just very uh, go, 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 got to go kind of person. And so alcohol either slowed me down or allowed me to be connected to other people that were go, go, go. And so, yeah, I like to drink. I liked uh, vodka straight off, straight up with a twist of lemon or lime. And then I would drink wine. If you gave me red wine, I would drink a case of it. So yeah, I drank a lot. And I mean, you were 12 when you started this relationship. Tell me a little, a little bit more about how it evolved and how was your life unfolding or developing as a parallel to this relationship that you had with alcohol? Were you just functioning normally in the world? Were you drinking by yourself? Were people noticing? Just how was that progression like uh, from the outside in? Yeah, it was uh, nobody knew. Nobody really knew that I was drinking like I did. Uh, I was a member of the track team and the volleyball team, the swim team. You know, I was on the cheer squad, you know, in school, I got decent grades. Uh, I graduated early. Nobody knew about that. I went into college and started taking college courses. I got a job. I had, I had a second life that my parents didn't know about that allowed me to drink and use like I wanted to. And when I was growing up, you know, I come from a single family you know, I grew up with my dad and he worked all the time. So it was really easy for me to go out and do what I wanted to do. I, I had literally no supervision. And it was a time when things were a lot less complicated than they are now, right? I could walk home and not have like a device on me and I could drive a car and not be worried about it. And it was just a different time. So everything on the outside looked normal. The inside was, uh, I depended on that drink. Knowing that you had a blackout 
straight out of the gate, right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. What was happening in your thought process? Were you wondering, oh man, like, does that happen to everyone? Did you know immediately that it was a problem? Did you kind of just shove that thought aside if it came? Like, what was the internal dialogue that you were having with yourself about this? Yeah, there was no problem. There was no problem because other people drank like I did. Mm -hmm. You know, my friends drank like I did. My boyfriend was the student body president. He drank like I did. It was normal, right? The football players, mm-hmm. every everybody. And as my age progressed, I hung out with people who drank like I did. So there wasn't an inner dialogue. Oh, I'm sick today. Well, that's the way it is. It's just life. It's just life. It was, it was just life to throw up. It was just life to be hungover. Mm-hmm. It was just life. It became yeah. my normal. It became your normal. And then that's the type of people and environment that we continue to attract to just kind of perpetuate that normalcy and that justification. So did anything happen as this was evolving, like as your life was progressing and you were getting older, did you start having some oh shit moments or what happened Uh, next? Yeah, I think as, you know, I progressed and my career became bigger. I was, you know, I lived a very glamorous life. I lived in Los Angeles and I hung out with elite, the Hollywood elite, and uh, it was just expected to be a certain way. But what started happening for me is that the blackouts were becoming worse. And I was, I was becoming afraid because I, I was a person that would get behind the wheel and drive. And a friend of mine got a DUI and I was like, wait, how's that possible? how could she get a DUI? And I, and I didn't like, I, I, it, it just, things started not making sense to me. Meanwhile, my career was still uh, evolving. I was still making more money. And I think the, the thing that struck me the hardest was I gave my best friend, like one night I, we got in a, a physical fight and, you know, I sent her to the hospital with a concussion and I didn't remember it. But a couple of days later, I, I had a, a roll of film that I went, you know, we used to have to go get film back there and uh, took it to the store and they made the pictures and I saw what had happened because somebody had picked up my camera and captured the action live. And I didn't see my best friend for a year after that moment, but that moment was the beginning of something's wrong with my drinking. And a year after is when by chance, you know, grace, I stopped drinking. When you had that moment of the pictures, did you perceive yourself differently? Did something internal click? I don't think anything clicked. It was more of a, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Because I have everything. My career is going well. My clients are like, everything was, it's, it just kept expanding. But the way that I was dealing with things was not okay. And that's what I knew. I was like, something is not making sense. So it wasn't like, oh, red flag. It was more confusing to me Mm -hmm. because everybody around me was drinking like me. You know, there's a lot of people that need to hear this because it's coming from within like that confused state or that like little nudge. Mm -hmm. It you, there was still a part of you that was connected to that, whatever intuition or whatever we want to call it, that was like, something's off, you know, fill in the blank, off, weird, not right, whatever that is. But a part of you was listening to that and 
I mean, I'm sure grateful that that you were listening because a lot of people too, like that, that tends to drown out and we have this disconnect between mind body. And it, I feel like there was still a part of you that could hear yourself. Yes. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So still at this point, nobody was pointing out to you that they were worried about you or was anything in your life other than obviously your internal struggle was being affected, like any relationships or were there any bigger repercussions of your drinking at this point? Not huge. Uh, I feel like my, my circle of friends became smaller, Hmm. but I didn't notice it until I was, until I had stopped drinking because I had quite an income and the revenue kept flowing in. I didn't like, that wasn't an issue. Somebody at my work, you know, said, I think we need to, I think you need to go home today. And I was like, but I'm okay. And she was like, no, you smell like vodka. You can go back in your dressing room and you can pack up and you can come back. We can come back tomorrow. And I was like, what? And I did, I just had no idea. So that was another like, uh, but wait a minute, why? But that was one of those repercussions where somebody found out, somebody realized that, you know, (laughs) I had a problem. Yeah. It had to feel strange because it sounds like you still were like, wait, what? You know, it had to feel, I don't know, like the feeling of getting caught when we're doing something wrong. If I just even say that sentence out loud, I can feel it in my body. Like there's a visceral Mm. response. Did you feel that way? Or were you still in such denial to where it was like, okay, fine. I'll go home. You know, like it was denial. I was like, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Mm. I'm going to go home and sleep. Great. And on my way home, I, you know, got another bottle because that's what I do. That's what I did. You know, like it was an everyday occurrence at that point. And it wasn't a lot, but I was still in the behavior. How was your body doing at this point? You know, our body's so wonderful. It gets used to the good and the and the bad. So yeah your body was still operating, but were you having any like sleep issues or anxiety or was anything progressing on the physical level? No, my career wouldn't allow that. So I had uh, repercussions when I was about two and a half years sober and my body completely gave out. Wow. So that happened for me. It happened after I got into recovery. So what was it that got you into the recovery? If we are sitting on this place of such denial then tell me about how you created that bridge between denial and, and getting help and going into recovery mode. What happened? I landed in a mutual aid meeting on New Year's Eve by accident. And they sat me in the front row and they welcomed me. And I thought I was going to a magic party and uh, they gave me cookies and they cared and they said, welcome, Lane. We're so glad you're here. Here, we have a seat for you right in the front. And I thought, oh, they know who I am. This is awesome. And then uh, a woman started speaking. And I thought, this is not a magic show. <laughs> and I ended up getting sober. I heard the message of recovery. And I had hope. If you don't mind me asking, or if we can go into detail, who told you that you were going to a a show that was an AA meeting and not a show. Like how, how did that even happen? So I don't, this is what I, because I was 
delusional, right? They probably said, ah, we're all going to a meeting, but I didn't realize what a meeting meant to them. Right. Yeah. I was with my uh, girlfriend at the time, her parents, which I didn't know they were sober. You know, there was a lot of little things that started happening in my life that led up to that point. So when we landed, uh, you know, on the East coast after taking a train for three days and they're just, you know, talking and I haven't had a drink and I'm kind of out of my mind, you know, and they're saying, oh, we're just going to go, you know, we're going to go, it's new year's Eve. We're going to go to this meeting. You know, there's a show because it was like a like a little talent night, you know, for a new year's (laughs) meeting. And, uh, lo and behold, you know, it was a 12 step based recovery meeting. You know, I feel like, I mean, we've done a lot of interviews and people that now call AA their home or it's part of their family. It's still an initial kind of shocker for most people. You know, it's such a unique style of meeting and it's so vulnerable and people are sharing and there's drunkalogs happening. What do you think made you so easily feel comfortable? Like, did you enjoy that first meeting? Because a lot of us, it's a weird first time. So I can't imagine for someone like you who just stumbled in, I mean, were you drunk? Like how was that first experience? Because it is uncomfortable for many people. And I've never talked to someone with a story similar to yours, where it was more of an accident. So what was your reaction to being there once you realized you were there? I was happy to feel like there were other people like me. It was comfortable. They invited me. They were welcoming. They were nice because I had gotten to a place in my drinking and using career where, you know, I had people deliver things to me. I would show up late and leave early. So I never got to socialize with people anymore. You know, my world had become very small where I had a housekeeper and about three friends. And one of them had track marks all over her arms. So my world had become very small. So when I walked into a room and they said, oh my God, we have a place for you to sit. Please join us. We're so glad you're here. I was like, these are really nice people. And what I've discovered over the years is that when I go back into those settings, it's the same as when I first got there. People are very nice and they have a warm heart and they have a message of hope. So tell me about what you shared, because it seems like, you know, it was just you, um, everything was great and successful on the outside, but you have shared a couple of times that your world was getting smaller and smaller. Like, did you think at the time, like what's happening that my circle is just closing and closing, or was it just normal for you that your world had become so small at the time? I think what happens is that you don't really realize it when you're drinking and using people don't matter. No big deal. Like, oh, I don't talk to that person anymore. Eh, no big deal. I don't like them. They stop calling me, right? When we're, we're, when we're drinking and using, we're a ball of resentment and anger and disappointment and frustration. And that's why we drink. We drink to quiet all of those voices. So for me, it didn't matter when my, my world got small because I was so happy and content by myself and the few people that I had with me who drank with me, who were like me. And then when I walked into that mutual aid and they all spoke the same language of me and welcomed me, I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Feels so good. Yeah. And those voices that you were trying to drown, do you know what they were about? Like, did you know why you were drinking the way that you were drinking? Obviously after being sober, but do you know what you were running from? I don't think I was running from anything. I think I enjoyed drinking. Like I had a fairly good life. But this, this 
thing that you share about mm -hmm. having this rage, having everything that you said that this is what's happening inside when we're drinking and we don't care about people. What, so it wasn't happening to you? It was happening, but it wasn't like I didn't drink because there was something wrong with me, if that's what you're trying to get to. It was, I am an alcoholic. I suffer from addiction, which is a mental illness that centers in my mind. Addiction kills people. So when I got to the mutual aid meeting and they were talking of a solution and it was spiritual and it felt good, I thought I'm going to stick around here because it felt good. I wanted to feel good. I was tired of not feeling good. And the day after that first meeting, you just came back or now we can go into the after, like what happened after that first meeting and how was your chapter one of sobriety? <laughs> it, it was amazing. My early recovery was, I just have fond memories and community. It was, yes, it was hard at first. It's hard to walk into a place that you don't know anybody and everybody's a stranger. It's hard to stop drinking. It's hard to break a habit. It's hard to do all that. But I think at the end, you know, when that one, when my boss said, you know, you smell and you have to go home. I was like, Ugh. and then when I realized that I only had like three friends, Ugh. like I'm going to gloss over everything and make everything sound really good in my life. But when I actually stop drinking and start assessing what's happening, and then I walk into a room and I'm like, oh, these people understand me and they get it. I felt like I fit in and I started doing things. They welcomed me and they brought me to breakfast and we went to movies and everybody got in the car and hung out and we'd go to the park and go swimming. It was like my whole life changed. My early recovery was foundational for the life that I live today. Yeah. And it sounds like luckily you were able to see things differently, right? That's what I always say. Like our ability to see things differently can change so much when you started getting to the point where you were questioning, oh, what was happening? Like you said, I only had a few friends and I got asked to leave work. So it, right. it does seem like you arrived into some sort of introspection and were surrounded by the right community to yes. help you. Because like you said, it is hard at the beginning. So were you hitting a meeting every day or what was getting you through that first almost like habitual? Yeah, the untraining yeah. of what you were doing prior to that. Yeah. So I called my girlfriend's mother who lived on the East coast where I had just gotten back from. And she said, you know, I'm going to tell you a secret about this recovery stuff. And I was like, what? I need all the secrets I can get. She's like, just go every day, go every day. Don't question it. And then she said, if you can go more, that's great. And luckily for me, uh, there was a, a meeting center, like literally I could roll out of bed and go. And so I did that. And there were people there that I, I identify, like I could identify. They were, you know, musicians and people of stature. And I just thought, okay, if they're doing this, then I can do this. I'm okay here. And it became fun for me. And, you know, I got sober in the, in the nineties and it was, again, I just, it was a different time and the music was different. People were different fashion video. It was just a different time. And I'm so, so incredibly grateful that I got sober in Los Angeles where recovery is celebrated. It is applauded because not everywhere it's a big deal. You know, I've been, I've had the opportunity to live in many places and travel around the globe and go to meetings all over. And there's nothing like Los Angeles recovery. Yeah. It's such a safe space. It's such a iconical city to 
be so bad. I mean, I'm in California, so I, I, I understand. And did you start like making friends? Did you get a sponsor? Did you start basically adopting chosen family by going to these meetings? Uh, it took me a little while. I think for 90 days, I just kind of hung out and sat in the back. Uh, I used to, you know, get made fun of that. I would like blend into the wall, but yeah, I mean, I got in the car and went around with several, a crew of people, you know, there was like 10 of us that would just hang out and go from place to place and experience recovery. They taught me how to live my life without drinking and using. Yes. That's what I want to get to. So other than having that community support and accountability, what other changes started to unfold in your life? How did your life start to change then? Well, I was aware that I needed to show up for my clients and my work on time because I was always late and I was able to be honest with my agent and honest with the people around me. I got more jobs. I made more money. It was, it was kind of crazy the first two years of my recovery because everything started just like blossoming. Mm -hmm. And then in that third year is when I got sick and my body started falling apart and I had to take a new path. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Uh, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder and, you know, back then in 99, nobody, you know, there wasn't any kind of gluten studies. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't any, there, you know, immune, what is that immune problems? We don't know what that means. Uh, so I was like this anomaly, you know, my hair was falling out. They thought I had HIV. Uh, they thought I, you know, had kidney disease, but it was just like this really I was bankrupt, like physically bankrupt. And, you know, I got sober, but I started drinking Diet Coke, right? And then I'd be drinking six to 12 Diet Cokes a day and living off of, you know, red vines and eating candy and popcorn. So my body, you know, had been living off of vodka tonics <laughs> and then switched over to another, you know, drug and it just didn't make it. And so I had to you know, take a time out, had to find a new career, had to find a new life. I just had to reset my life. So by the time I was five years sober, I kind of packed up my bags, 9-11 hit, and I started traveling the world and fell into Buddhism and found a way out, which is, you know, through prayer and meditation. And that's been the golden thread throughout the last 20 years of my recovery. Oh, that's so powerful, Lane. And I want to ask, you know, when you did get sick, I feel like getting physically sick like that uh, can be very defeating emotionally. And mm -hmm. did it shake your recovery a little bit? I mean, I know you stayed sober, but did you, I don't know, did you feel defeated because you were probably or may have thought, you know, I'm sober, I'm doing the right thing. And here I am. Like, how did, did it feel defeating or were you able to navigate that? I was able to navigate it because I had that crew of people that would show up and bring me breakfast, lunch, and dinner and hang out with me and watch, you know, sex in the city. It was actually, again, I just go back to, I created a group of individuals that we were all in this recovery stuff together. So if I had a doctor's appointment, they were coming with me and you know, you can't find that anywhere else. Like who does that? Well, people in 12 step. Yeah, we, I think other than finding people that understand our disease, we also just find, like you said, people that actually do life with us and just like run errands or doctor's yeah. appointments or those, yeah. those things. Who will move your house for you? 
Yes. Right. Like, oh, I got to move next week. Okay. I'll get the trucks. I get the dollies. We'll be there 7 a.m. Like who, who does that? Well, yeah. So and willingly, because most of the time, the people who do that are family. And it's like resentfully sometimes like, oh, I don't exactly. want to do it, but I feel like right. I have to do it. You know, and I feel like here Mm-mm. it is a very different type of relationship and energetic exchange. So I'm just really glad to hear that you immediately dove into that and like found your people. That's that's great. And in terms of the spiritual path in Buddhism and Buddhism and going in that direction, how was that? Like, did you just stumble upon it? Were you looking for other alternatives or what was your journey with that? And what continues to be your journey with that? Because now I know you are a coach. So talk to me a little bit about how that evolved. I think when 9-11 hit, I mean, everybody thought the world was ending just like when COVID hit, right? It's like, what just happened? The life is over. I had an existential moment of like, there's got to be more meaning in my life. And I literally within 30 days, I was on a plane and overseas. And I knew that I had to seek, I knew that I had to find something else in my life. And I wasn't really looking per se for Buddhism, right? I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go down this path. I was already in Los Angeles taking spiritual uh, classes to become not a minister, but to hold space for people and a practitioner of uh, Michael Beckwith's of Agape Church. So I was already in the kind of spiritual flow of things and landing in a different country and then recognizing like, these people are so peaceful. What are they doing? Like they have nothing in their lives. They're living on the dirt and they are happy. I want that. And it kicked me into finding, you know, this, very traditional Buddhism. And then it became too rigid for me. Like I didn't want to shave my head. I wasn't willing to do that. (laughs) Like I'm not doing that. And so I had to leave. Right. And so then I got to look at, well, I like some of those principles. And over the years, I've been able to study and go deeper into different traditions and create my own practice. And it's been you know, everybody has their own, like it's an adventure. And for me in my recovery, it's like, I have to continually spiritually grow. And if I'm not growing, I'm dying. And then I, then I don't feel good. Yeah. You know, and I really appreciate that you share that there were things about it that didn't feel right to you. And that back to what I said earlier, you know, you were still connected to yourself to where you could see this works for me, this doesn't work for me, this sits right, this doesn't sit right. And like that we all have that power and that ownership of taking what does work and go with it. Because I always say it's an experiment. I love that you just called it an adventure, but only you have your own adventure and it's catered to you and you are basically navigating that. I feel like for a lot of us in recovery, I think it's very normal, but we spend a lot of time asking for advice and like, what am I supposed to be doing? Am I doing it right? Am I supposed to be meditating now? Am I supposed to be going to a meeting every day? And of course, it's all wonderful advice when we receive it. But ultimately, we do have to continue to check in and do what feels good to us because there is nobody like us. So it's tricky because it's this uh, push-pull between, you know, allowing to be led and also honoring what aligns with you. Right. 
It takes practice. It totally takes practice. I know you have a family and live in San Francisco. So when did that start coming into play? You know, were you sober when you became a mother? You know, more, tell me more about that part of your life and how it developed. I landed back in San Francisco when I was about 10 years sober, I think. And it was like starting over, uh, rediscovering life. I met my husband shortly thereafter and we got married. We traveled and did all kinds of fun things. And then we got married and I had my son uh, 12 years ago uh, here in San Francisco. It's, you know, sobriety is very different, looks very different. People don't drive around and have fun together. <laughs> it's, sometimes they go bowling. This is very, it's a different city here, but the principles are the same. So there's still, the mutual aid is still there. I think becoming a mother was, has been, I'll say has been the most challenging thing in my recovery. I'm pretty open about that. Like being a mother is so hard. It's like nothing I ever anticipated. It has driven me to explore my spiritual path even more. Uh, I've had to lean into it and find deeper connection with a power that I call G-O-D. And, you know, I think I was, uh, I think my son was four and I had an awakening around rage and I didn't know that rage lived within me. And I had to understand where it was coming from or if it was coming from anywhere. Emotionally, I've had to look at you know, you can put down the drink, but because we suffer from a mental illness, the mental illness is still there. So how are you going to soothe that mental illness? And for me, what I've discovered that it is a spiritual practice that I have to be engaged with every day. My spirit has to be nourished. And if I'm not doing that, then it becomes ill and dis-ease sets to, dis, you know, it sets in. And the longer that I'm in recovery becomes a little more challenging, you know, like I have a really big life and it's easy to forget to connect with people because my life is so big. It's like, I just got to go, go, go. But at the end of the day, when I'm feeling disconnected, I have to remember, oh yeah, I just have to practice. I have to plug myself back in. And so that's what I do. In these chapters of your life now where life is so big and you've unfolded so much, what are small moments that you cherish or that ground you? What in your like daily routine of this big life keep you here and happy? So I, I often hold this moment of giving birth. You know, having my son was, you know, monumental, but and giving birth was epic. <laughs> um, so often I'll go back to that moment to remember that I can do hard things. I also... We'll just talk to a friend, take the dogs out. It's like sometimes these really simple things like fill my heart and get me back on the path. Sometimes it's not easy. You still go to meetings at all? I do. Yeah, it's it's really cool just to hear from your story. You know, I, I, feel, I always talk about almost like having one of those big tool belts that you see at Home Depot and it's just <laughs> full of things and just, mm -hmm. you know, they, you don't always need all the things you, you know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, but just having 
that kind of latched on and or in your garage or wherever, but just knowing mm -hmm. it's there and then pulling out the tools when you need them. So I'm happy that you, you know, the meetings continue to be important to you. My dad's coming up on 13 years sober. And I mean, he used to go to a meeting every day and mm -hmm. now he still goes, but just the relationship with our tools changes. And, and I hear from you that spirituality has become almost like instead of a tool, an anchor for you. Correct. Do you get any cravings at all, Lane? Like, do you get any thoughts of like, oh man, a glass of wine sounds good right now? Just like random thoughts of alcohol or does that not cross your mind at all anymore? No, I can't even tell you when that, that no, it, it, it was never, it, it was never an issue for me. When I put it down, it was down. Like it relieved 100%. You know, I have moments now in recovery where I will drink decaf, decaf coffee and I'll be like, I have to have decaf coffee. I have to have decaf coffee. I have to have that. I have to go to that place and get a decaf coffee, mm -hmm. right? Because I still can become obsessive. My, the obsession changes, but the substance, you know, that's like, I'm not, I'm not picking up again because I, yeah. I, I have another recovery in me. Well, yeah, like you said, it's uh, not just about not drinking. There's a lot that is part of the disease that has nothing to do with the behavior and everything to do with the the thinking mind, right? Which is correct. The thing that we can't eject ourselves ourselves from when we don't drink. So, I, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. I do feel like that obsession, for me at least, also ebbs and flows according to what is going on with me. Like that obsession is such a great indicator mm -hmm. of how much I need to check in with myself, how disconnected I am, how out of control I feel, you know, a, a number of things um, that are specific to my disease, like you said, so powerful, Lane. And I mean, I can feel the calmness in your voice. I'm someone who's very loud, Mexican, you know, like just, uh, I'm working so much on channeling that calmness because it, it extends into everything that we do. I'm a mom like you and, and, I do think, like you said, that motherhood is so challenging and brings us to deeper parts of ourselves that are scary and hard and that are pretty triggering, or at least for me. So mm -hmm. I hear you. Uh, what do you do when you go somewhere new and meet new people that don't know who Lane Kennedy is and like, say they just offer you a drink? What is your go-to response to that type of interaction now? Thank you, but no, thank you. That's it. And that's all it takes. That's all you need to say. <laughs> I'm pretty vivacious and alive. And so if I look at somebody's eyes and say, thank you and no, thank you. It's that's it. I, I, nothing else needs to be said. And they'll say, well, can I get you something else? I'll be like, yes, please. <laughs> I'd love it. Lane, and we have reached the rapid fire round. So I have a few last questions. And if you could answer these in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabulous. Are you ready? Oh my God, pressure. <laughs> <laughs> the good kind. <laughs> okay, let's try it. What is an unexpected perk of this journey? Oh my God, friendship, mm. deep friendship. If you could talk to young Lane, what would you say? Let go fast. If you like ice cream, what's your favorite ice, ice cream flavor? Oh my God. Mitchell's ice cream here in San Francisco has a strawberry and it's so good. Typically, Mitchell's? It's Mitchell's ice cream. Yeah. So good. I'm going to have to take note because I've been to San Francisco and I've never been to Mitchell's and I love ice cream. 
what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? You deserve a great life. Just ditch it. You'll be someone on the other side that you're like, whoa, dude, look at me. (laughs) Ditch it. And before we depart, Lane, give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if you're getting in a car and drinking or if you just drank and you get into a car and you drive, it's probably a good time to say adios to booze. It is. I'm glad you're only driving to get your decaf these days. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I can't wait to air this and I appreciate you so much, Lane. Thank you, Odette. It's been a pleasure and honor to be heard and I'm grateful for your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Very well, Timari. That's a wrap for our interview today. And before I say adios, I want to share with you something that I read over the new year that really resonated with me. This was on Laura McCowan's Instagram, and she shared a couple of slides with just a message of hope that I feel like many of us could really benefit from right now. The slides say, if you could see even a fraction of what's possible for you, you would fall to your knees and cry. Possibility is dripping from your chin. Treasures are hidden all over your heart. You are so much more than you've ever imagined. I don't know about all of you out there listening, but when I stumbled upon this, I read it and reread it and saved it because I definitely needed it. So just felt compelled to share. And I really hope that All of you are taking care of yourselves and believing in yourselves and believing in possibility as much as possible right now. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, staying in the present is the best thing we can do for our future. Have a great week. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? This is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. It can't be thought. Your inner purpose is to awaken.